Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. It's the Hook Rocks. It's the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying warm. We are in the midst of winter. Holiday season is over. The new year has begun. And hope everybody's off on the right foot, as we all like to do at this time of year. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Check out all the great music podcasts related on PantheonPodcast.com. As I mentioned, I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Check us out wherever you do podcast. We're on all streaming platforms or all podcast platforms, I should say. So give us a follow, give us a subscribe and uh, enjoy all the episodes that we've done. We've had over 450. We're approaching year four or into year four pretty soon. We've had some great episodes recently to start the new new year off. We recently had Richie Kotzen on from the band The Winery Dogs. We just spoke about the Live Nation Ticketmaster Monopoly and the recent U.S. Senate hearing that happened yesterday. Uh, So please check that out, too, as well. It's all that information about how Live Nation Ticketmaster are manipulating the market on both the initial ticket market and the secondary market, how they're getting exclusive rights to bands to play at certain venues, Live Nation venues and nothing else. So it's a whole mess and we break it down for you. So hopefully you enjoy that. And also to the episodes that started off the new year, our yearly rankings of the top 20 albums of 2022 with my friend Chris Corradetti. So check that out as well. Like I said, write us a review. We always appreciate the positive reviews and the feedback that you all leave us from time to time. So please, more of that. And man, it's been a 
great year so far. It's been um, filled with some new music. Some great albums have come out. We've uh, I recently did a review of the Buddy Guy show in downtown Chicago that I went to. So please check that out too as well. The opening act was Leilani Kilgore, a great um, new emerging blues rock guitar player, singer, songwriter. So uh, yeah, please enjoy that. And we've got another great episode for you today. It's a band that uh, just released a new album about a week ago. And that band is Fastest Land Animal. And we've got Screaming Jack from the band. What's happening, man? How are you? What's cooking over there in the Windy City? It is cooking, you know, it got the heat going and uh, it's not exactly grill weather yet. It's in the 20s, but if it gets yeah. above 35, we'll be grilling some burgers. Burgers and you got to make some of those good uh, Chicago dogs, too. Yeah, yeah. And Italian sausage as well. Can't, yeah, can't miss that. you're talking. So what's uh, up, man? Thanks again for doing this. I appreciate learning a lot about you and the new band or the band, I should say, over the last few weeks. So happy to have you on. We're uh, happy to, well, I'm happy to be here. The other guys are still asleep, I guess. Um, but, uh, we are, um, we're excited about our new album just came out, uh, called East Coast, West Coast in between. Um, the reason why we are calling it that is because, um, much like this is our second album now as fastest land animal. And much like the first one, we, uh, by necessity, we recorded the first one remotely. Because we were all locked in our houses. This was the, you know, first half of 2020. And we couldn't tour. We couldn't get together and record. Uh, but I said, why don't we, rec- we all have home studios. Let's all record remotely, glue it all together at the end. And then as soon as they let us, we'll go tour. So we did all of that. And then for the second album, we weren't locked down anymore, but, um, uh, we all live, uh, on separate coasts. Uh, you know, I live in uh, New York. Our uh, bass guitarist and uh, guitarist guitarist, he lives uh, out in Arizona. Our producer lives in California. And uh, our drummer lives in Texas. So we did the whole uh, remotely record thing again and uh, did our second album that way. And the process is really kind of fun and uh, easy for us at this point. Uh, So it works well. I mean, you know, at some point we're going to go into a studio again together but this is working for us right now kind of back up a little bit we got lots to get into but wanted to talk with you we always ask that same first question every time we have a first time guest on the show and that's really what we're all about here on the hook is just like every rock song has a hook that that sucks you in every rock fan has a moment whether it's a song an album a band or performance that hooked them on rock and roll what was it for you I mean, the very first thing that hooked me in was the Beatles. But, you know, we're going back to when I was, this is like, I was 18 months old. And some of the first memories I have was me, you know, dancing. And by dancing, I mean just sort of rocking back and forth on my legs in front of my parents' stereo, listening to Sgt. Pepper, and uh, getting really upset when the album would end. And I would say, more, more. And they would start it over for me. Um so yeah, that's my, that's what hooked me in. And my dad, my dad taught me when I was about six years old, he taught me how to play three chords on a guitar. And he said, if you know these three chords, you can play thousands of songs. Uh, he was a big Bob Dylan fan. And, um, and then, uh, 
started taking piano when I was about six years old, piano lessons as well. So music has just been ingrained in me since like it's in my DNA since, since the very, very early years of my life. Um, and then I got, you know, really excited when the, the punk and new wave things started happening in the late seventies, well, mid to late seventies, early eighties and bands like the Ramones and, the, and then the pretenders and, and, uh, Elvis Costello and the police, uh, really, I thought that was a really exciting time for music. And then a little, uh, tiny bit later on, there was a band called Husker Du out of the Midwest, uh, much like yourself, uh, out of the Minneapolis scene in the, I think it was the early eighties. And they did this thing that I'd never heard before. They, they were creating this. It was, they really came out of a hardcore scene. So they were loud and, and abrasive sounding and fast and, you know, just thinly sounding recordings, but, Buried underneath all that, that like, uh, that muck and gnarliness were these really pretty songs and, and good hooky pop songs. So when I heard a band could be that raucous, but have songs that pretty at the same time, that I said, well, I want to do that. And that, that's sort of the, the concept behind Fastest Land Animal. That's what I was going to ask you too. And listening to your music, it definitely has a, a, punk vibe to it, punk influence to it, but it's also got some beautiful melody as well. Uh, and and, it, and it, you talk about the Beatles who are known for <clears throat> the gorgeous melodies and, you know, the arrangements. And then you talk about some of the other influences like the Pretenders and Ramones and, you know, Husker do as well. And it really um, kind of merges both those worlds together uh, seamlessly. And it's, it's really cool. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we're striving for. No one, no one's better than, you know, the Beatles. I mean, they, they're in a league of their own. They're Lennon and McCartney or up there with Mozart and, you know, the Gershwins. And uh, as far as like the best songwriters in the history of not only pop, but just music period. Um, So I think a lot of musicians who have been working since then, got into it because of the Beatles and, you know, you strive to write songs that good. Um, but then to add this, this aggressiveness to it um, and speed to it, uh, that's, that's fun for me. That's just like, you know, getting on my motorcycle and, and, you know, cruising around over the speed limit and uh, just with the, you know, wind whisking by me. That's, that's the fun. That's what makes it fun for me. It always amazes me too. You talked about those three chords that your dad taught you and how, how writing the simplest song, the simplest riffs can be the most difficult, right? I mean, everybody, you always have these elitist musicians that always say, Oh, you know, ACDC is easy to play or the Beatles, you know, that's, you know, simple stuff. Well, if it was so easy, if it was so simple, how come everybody doesn't write it? You know, because there's something in the in the genius of simplicity. Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, really the the original punk rock movement came out of a reaction to music getting really complicated. You know, the Beatles uh, opened that whole thing, I think, with Sgt. Pepper, and uh, then you had bands like Pink Floyd back then, the Pink Floyd, um, and then that kind of jump started the whole prog rock movement. And then you had bands like Yes and, uh, you know, and um, King Crimson. And, you know, they were writing musical suites that were 20, they barely, you know, 20 minutes long. They barely fit on an album side. 
with different movements and varying time signatures and different keys, you know, uh, and, and it was really, I mean, especially back then, I think there was, let's just say hallucinogenics were prevalent. Um, and so you kind of literally went on a, literally and figuratively went on a trip when you listen to this type of music, but then punk said, you know, I, I, let's just do three chords. Let's do kind of what music was like before that. Um, even before the Beatles, but just speed it up and, and make it louder. Um, and yeah, I don't think that's that easy to do. You can say, oh, ACDC's three chords or whatever, but that, you know, Don Gilmore said this to me a long time ago. If you really listen to the songs that you love, the songs that are huge hits, they're not that complicated. But what's complicated is their simplicity and and the hook, you know, like you take a song like the Beatles, Yellow Submarine, it almost sounds like a kid's song, but that's what makes it so hooky. Um so, you, you know, you try and do that. I always like having a little bit of like seasoning or spice in there. So making putting putting a chord in a song where you don't think it's going to end up there or go through that chord to get to the next chord. But it makes your ears perk up and you think, wow, that's that's an interesting choice. The song's, you know, still pretty simple and I can sing along to it, but. I love that interesting little left turn they made there for, for a chord or two, and then it came back uh, to the hook of the song. It keeps the listener engaged. Yeah, Dave Grohl's really good at doing that. He'll write, yeah. you know, like some of his best music ever. Yeah, you, know, you go back to his first album, I'll Stick Around. There's a chord, I think it's a, maybe a sixth chord or something. I, I just don't know what how he made, what made him think of that chord, but it, it like really elevates the whole song and it makes it like something special. Yeah, that's true. Cause it, you know, when the listener gets trained and they, and they, they learn to expect a certain flow to the song and you put a, a note in there or a chord in there that's different that they weren't expecting it. It keeps the listener engaged in how they're absorbing the music. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's the part to me that I challenge myself with when I'm writing, you know, the music part of the song, uh, Lyrics are, are a whole different, whole different ball of wax uh, to me, anyway. But um, and they don't they don't come as easily to me as the music part. Uh, I have you know I'll, I'll when I'm writing the music I'll usually write the when I'm writing a song I'll write the music first and then the lyrics will sort of they will come a little bit later or I'll sing phonetically and a phrase will emerge out of that phonetic singing that I can write from the, that phrase out into the rest of the song. But Don, again, is a great uh, producer. He really works with me. You know, he doesn't rewrite my lyrics, but he says, try it again and get a through line and maybe connect these two things. And what's the story? What are you trying to tell? Be more visual. These are the kinds of things you got to think about when you're writing lyrics. Where does that come from for you? Um, the lyric part or the music part? The music part, adding those notes in that are unexpected. Where does that influence come from? Well, I mean, again, it goes back to bands like the Beatles and Husker Du did that and, uh, and Foo Fighters and, you know, all those, all those grunge bands like Nirvana. And I just always am looking for an interesting, different choice. It could be as simple as, I don't know how muso technical geeked out you want to get in this particular interview but you know instead of going to the the root on the base of the chord 
maybe go to the third. And then all of a sudden it's a little, it's like, wow, that's, I didn't expect that. And it kind of goes along with whatever you're singing melodically and changes the the whole feeling of the song. So I'm, I'm just always looking to, you know, I'll write something and the chords will sound good, but it just needs that extra little twist. And maybe it's a different vo- chord voicing. Maybe it's a whole different choice, but you want to go someplace that you're not, your brain isn't thinking you're going to go or the listener's brain is not expecting because that really, uh, and then you're also, you want to create tension when you're writing uh, a song and by sometimes choosing chords that aren't supposed to be there in quotes, supposed to be there. You're now creating a, a, a moment with tension and you hang on to that. And then when you release it, the listener goes, ah, wow, that was, that felt good. Lyrically, where do you see yourself, you know, with your influences and how how that came to be? Was there a song? Was there a particular songwriter that inspired you to write the style that you write in? I mean, you know, I think uh, Kurt Cobain was a pretty, pretty good lyricist. Uh, he, he's he's very um, efficient with his lyric writing. He could say a lot but keep it a little obscure and disguised, but, but he had an economy of words. So he wouldn't hit you over the head with a, with a whole bunch of ideas and words, but he would paint a picture using fewer words, but the words he picked were the right words for that picture. Um, But as far as, you know, writing lyrics for me goes, I'm, I'm in a thing that helps me a lot is I'm in a, a, thing called the song game which is a group of singer and singer songwriters that uh write each other it was started and it's still run by a singer songwriter out of austin texas by the name of bob schneider who happens to be a good friend of mine um i've been in the group for you know two decades now 18 years something like that and um what he does is every week he'll send out a word or a phrase and everyone in the group i think there's about 18 of us at this point has to write a song and record a song incorporating that word or phrase. And then you send it back out to the group. And the idea isn't to, you know, grade or, or comment on or criticize or do anything with anyone else's songs. You as a songwriter are just forced to write a song every week that, you know, other people, other songwriters will hear. And it exercises that muscle. Um, And it exercises that lyric writing muscle. And if you write, you know, you're doing 52 songs a year, roughly, then the idea is that out of those 50 somewhat some odd songs that you're going to have maybe eight or nine that are, if not keepers, at least parts of those songs are keepers. And then that gives I mean, that that exercises that songwriting muscle. And that's that's how you get better at it, I guess, like anything else. That's a really interesting concept. I've never heard of someone doing that. And, and and you think about how just the body works and the brain works, you know, and, and, in getting in that mode and, and more or less staying in that mode as a musician, as a songwriter has to be beneficial. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing if you play tennis or golf or, or snowboard or whatever you do, the, the, the more you practice it, the more natural it's going to become and the easier it's going to be to do it again. And uh, the same thing is true with, I mean, even um, when we, when we're on tour or if we're recording, I'm 
very diligent about doing vocal exercises every single day because your vocal cords are a muscle. And especially with some of the songs that we're singing, which I'm, you know, have to scream a lot of the, of, a lot of the lines. Um, if I'm not doing my vocal exercises, I'm not going to be able to make it through a tour. I just, I'll lose my voice. Um, and then the same thing with practicing the songs and, you know, getting together with the band and just rehearsing and rehearsing and playing and rehearsing and playing so that when you're actually on stage and there's thousands of people in the crowd, you're not thinking about what you're playing. It's muscle memory at that point. You're not worried about your voice or where your fingers are on your fretboard. You're just entertaining and you're looking at the crowd and you're trying to think of things you can do special to that show that's going to get the crowd you know, on your side or get them excited. Like, where am I going to stand? Who am I going to look at in the crowd? Where am I going to go next? Not, oh, geez, what's the next line? Or, or uh, uh, is my voice going to make it to the end of this, uh, you know, tour? That Those are the things you don't want to think about. And that just comes with practice. How beneficial was that during the pandemic? Or did this group exist during the pandemic? We started during the pandemic, and that, that was our first album, we recorded remotely and we didn't play out. We couldn't play out. There were no gigs. There was no venues. There was no nothing. So uh, we all just practiced at home. You know, I practiced the songs on my guitar, figuring uh, and singing, figuring and memorizing lyrics, figuring at some point, someday we're going to be playing these songs live. I don't know when. I also, uh, you know, I know people did things like taught themselves how to make sourdough bread and, how to do whatever. I, I taught myself five string banjo during a pandemic. So as far as, as far as that songwriting group though, did that exist during the pandemic? Yeah, that's been, that's been in existence for years. Yeah. And that was one of the things that helped, helped everyone get through the pandemic. Cause you, you had an assignment every week. Um, and you could share your music with, uh, with other people who you knew and, or respected and were musicians. I mean, that's, you know, Something to look forward to, for sure. And then a lot of us, uh, Bob was doing this uh, live streaming concert thing from just from his house, from his uh, recording studio. And that was something, you know, I, we couldn't go to see him live or get together and play live. But I could, you know, see him and, uh, you know, play live every whatever it was, Tuesday night. That is a pretty powerful thing when you consider being on lockdown, you know, being during COVID to have that every week to look forward to and to keep being inspired or inspiring yourself to, to continue to write music and not just wait for something to happen. No, I think it was actually an opportunity to write a lot of music um, because you didn't, you, you couldn't go on tour. So, you know, a, a lot of times when you're on tour, you're so focused on that, um, that, you can't just sit at home and write music. Although, you know, I find a way to write music anyway, even though I'm on tour. But yeah, man, we, I mean, we wrote and recorded an album and a half during pandemic. If you include our, we, our first one was recorded and released during pandemic. And then the second one was, we started at the end of pandemic and then it finished. It just came out now. You mentioned something in the beginning of the interview about how the recording process went and the creative process went you know, being remote, being on different, you know, two different sides of the country. How difficult for you was to kind of get used to that style rather than being in a room with bandmates and writing music? Um, I, I don't know. I, I've 
got used to it pretty quickly. Um, cause first of all, we knew that like getting together and playing in a studio wasn't going to happen. So we really had no choice. And then it gave, it gave me a sense of purpose and something to do. Um, while the world was, had come to a standstill and it was good, you know, seeing, even though it was on a screen, seeing my, my friends and my bandmates talking through ideas, listening to them do their parts and then playing my parts for them. Um, so it, I, and you get pretty used to that process pretty quickly. It's, you know, I mean, Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. It's also, there's something to be said for the convenience of it. Like, uh, if this if it was normal, we would have rented a studio for what six weeks we'd all be together in that studio and then we'd have to finish that album in six weeks because we were kicked out of the studio but um this gave us a chance to not have to deal with you know now we have to set aside that time we're going to be in the studio all day you know you know most of the night uh for all these days straight this and we all have to travel to one studio even though we're living all over the place uh this was actually kind of efficient because I could work. I was tracking vocals. I knocked out all the vocals on both albums. You know, it took me per album a week to just sing all the vocals because I work really quickly with Don. And our our producer, Don Gilmore, we had worked with him 
on previous albums, you know, in a more traditional studio setting. So we were all used to working with him. And uh, I think we adapted really quickly. You know, Don, it was pretty cool. Don was in California, remotely operating my, uh, you know, recorded the album in Pro Tools. He he was remotely operating my computer while I sang in front of my computer on the other side of the country. So even Don was like, wow, this is cool. I can't believe I'm operating your computer. When you think of being in a room together, there's a certain synergy that's developed as you're creating music and writing music. Doing that's it remotely is is a it's a completely different vibe. It's a completely different type of atmosphere. How do you try to capture that synergy with each other when you are in in separate locations? Um, it's different. It takes you know it takes a little bit longer because you can't look each other in the eye and say, "Hey, try it this way. Try it that way." What you can do is. You know, you'll have like everyone will lay down the the basic like rough tracks so you can hear the whole song from wherever you are. Then you want to get you want to capture the drums first because you build like that's the foundation of the song. You build up from that. So we would literally sit over Zoom and say, you know, to the drummer, try it this way. And Shark would play it and we'd be like, that's cool. But why don't you try double time or, or try a different fill here? And then he would try it that way. And then we would say, okay, I think we all agree that the way you did it this time or the last time is what we should do. Then he would go record it, and then we'd get back together, whatever, the next day and listen to that. And so it, it's uh, in that respect, it takes a lot longer to piece things together. Um, but you just adapt. You get used to it. I mean, again, it's not ideal. I'd rather be – in the in the room with the guys in the band, have it develop a little more organically like that. But it's pretty amazing what you can do over, you know, over computer and uh, with all these video chat things that are uh, around now. Yeah, it's amazing what technology is able to do for, you know, situations like this. Yeah. Um, it, it's also, you know, easier to connect with musicians too that are in different locations. You know, even you think of, you know, the days of yesteryear when, when you developed a band, right? It was kids you knew in the neighborhood or across town or the next town over and you started playing. Where now, you know, you kind of have that ability to hear someone play through social media, interest in, you know, their, their, their sound and tone and whatever they're doing and connecting with them that way. And then potentially being a band together and recording music together. So it's really interesting how that dynamic exists. When just 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there was nothing like that. Yeah, it's it's like there's almost no gatekeepers anymore um, between the consumer and the uh, the musician. Um, but there's also a much larger pool now. So in a way, it's easier. It's easier to get, certainly easier to get your music out there. Before that, you had to be discovered by an A&R guy. You had to get a label deal. You had to record your album and then tour off that album, uh, maybe hopefully make money back for the label. So you get to do a second album. Now you just put you can record, you know, anything you want on your laptop for almost no money. Um, You don't need a record label. You don't need distribution. You get your music out there. But then there's 
along with that is that there's so much more content out there. How do you um, distinguish yourself? How do you break through all of that white noise? Um, so that's the challenge for musicians today. When you talk about the current music business, right, and, and how that exists where, you know, to mention it again, you know, days of yesteryear where there was a local Chicago band that absolutely kicked ass, but for whatever reason, they couldn't get signed to a label or labels weren't interested in them. Typically, you would only hear of that band in the Midwest and Chicago. And, you know, if there was a band from New York, there was a band from wherever you you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily hear of them. It, it would it would be very separated, very segregated when when you thought about music back 20, 30 years ago. And now, like you said, the gatekeepers are, are, are few and far between these days. So you have all this music coming out. And, and on one side, it's a great thing, right? Because you have bands that are really good, whether they're in New York, whether they're in Chicago, LA, wherever, you can hear them. Whether they're overseas, you can now hear them, um, which is pretty powerful and pretty awesome. But then you have the other side of it where anyone can make a record now. And, you know, I find with a lot of emerging artists, there's not someone in that room to tell them this needs to be better. That needs to be stronger. How do you guys compensate for that? Like, how do you guys have that that in place in the studio that you get feedback and you get an honest voice where it's not someone's girlfriend or mother telling you how great everything is all the time? Well, I mean, Don Gilmore's producer, that's a big part of the producer's yeah. job is to be quality control. And he's, you know, sold so many records in his life. I mean, I think I know he did those this first couple of Lincoln Park records, speaking of Chicago. Um, and uh, so he he it's his job to say, I know it's going to work. I know what people are going to want to hear. Uh, that's my ears are, are the are the gatekeepers in this instance. Um, and that's really helpful for, for certainly for us. I mean, uh, I, I love working with a producer. Don's a great guy. He's become a good friend. I like working with him a tremendous amount. And, you know, he's the guy who says, look, this song's done. Like you're finished. You can press stop. You don't have to record anymore. I got it. This is good. Or he'll say, this isn't working. Like, let's rethink this whole thing. Let's, Ixnay this song, or we can rearrange things, put this up here, put that there. Like that's how that's that's a big part of what I think a good producer should do and does. And how do you as an artist get to the point of trusting him? Is it is it his reputation? Um, is it trusting him and his his um his vision for your music? Or does there have to be some alignment with what you want to do and what he sees? your music going before you start that process. Yeah. I, mean, I think the alignment's built in. If he, you know, I wouldn't want to work with a producer and I don't think a producer would, would want to work with me that just doesn't get our music and it's not what they do. I mean, there's plenty of great producers out there that don't do a rock band thing or don't do punk. Um, and I don't think they would know what to do with us, with songs like us. But you know that going in, like we we knew his his uh, we we knew about his reputation and his discography before we started working with him. Um, and then he listened to our music and some of our uh, earlier albums, and he felt that there was a connection there, and it just it just worked out. I mean, there's other great producers out there for rock, of course, um, but uh, he's definitely the one. And then 
the other way to, to if you don't have a producer, you got to play these songs live. I mean, especially if you're in a band situation and you go out there and you can almost uh, workshop songs in front of a crowd um, as you're coming up the ranks, you know. So you're playing uh, in front of a crowd. You can see what resonates and feel what resonates with the crowd and what they like and what they don't like and what what gets them going and what, what you know, sends them, you know, to, the, to go get another beer or go to the bathroom. Let's talk about the new record. East Coast, West Coast, in between, out this past Friday, January 20th. The music is, like I said, beautiful melodies with that punk feel to it. And I think you, my listeners will enjoy it. What was this process like? How did this evolve from the previous first album that you guys did? Um, well, the process was very similar. We recorded it remotely from our home studios. Um, and basically, because of the song game I was in, uh, I'm still in with Bob Schneider and, and the gang, I was I just kept writing more and more songs. And originally, Fastest Land Animals' whole ethos was no songs, no slow songs. Every song has to be at least 150 beats per minute. Um, nothing too long, you know, time like three minutes, four would be really long. Um, and then build out from there. So I just kept, after the first album was released, I kept writing songs like that. And then before I knew it, I had another, you know, almost eight songs or so. So I called up the guys and said, let's do this again. Um, so that's what we did. It, it evolved a little bit from the first album. We definitely used more. Um, we did use some synths on the first album, but we used a lot of, uh, we have, uh, you know, I have a, a nice collection of analog synths, you know, from the uh, 70s, 80s, you know, mid 80s. And um, it's it adds this texture and this big chewiness, especially in some of the bass lines. Uh, and it evokes that early new wave uh, uh, punk new wave sound because that that was the 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 kinds of keyboards they had back then, and you're you know dialing in oscillators. Not you, this is not contained within a computer, and you're playing stuff live, and it really has a real a, an interesting sound to it that I don't think you can replicate on a computer. It's just not going to sound quite the same. So we were we were really happy with just you know whip, uh, breaking out all these old synths that I got lying around. When you look at the music and you look at the songs and you you know see where you were at on the first album, um, obviously the process was very similar. And you know, but where did, did you want to go with this record versus the first one? Did you want to just keep going with what you guys were doing? Was there something? that you wanted to to show on this album was there anything like that well i wanted to definitely keep going like we did with the first album but you know not definitely not have a sophomore slump which happens to a lot of bands you got the first album and it's got you know you almost run out of steam so i wasn't going to do this album if i didn't feel i had the material to support it but then we did you know there are two songs on this album that do not uh follow the 150 beats per minute or faster rule. Uh, one of them is actually the first single out of range. Um, but I just, that song just had such uh, a vibe to it that I couldn't resist putting it on the album. It's a real visual song and uh, kind of evokes 
it's the desert and being caught at a border town and you can't get home. Uh, and then, um, and then there's this other song that uh, it's almost uh, a ballad, um, but it's still, you know, it's still a little, little punk rock sounding. And then the other thing we did, which we, we, I've never done ever is recorded uh, a cover, a cover song. Um, we, you know, we'll play cover songs live here and there, you know, maybe end a set with something that people might uh, be familiar with, but we never recorded someone else's music. And uh, I just thought um, that would be, we needed one more song on the album and I figured let's do something from that, from that, that early new wave era that maybe people don't recognize right away. It wasn't such a huge hit, but they might listen to it and go, oh, this song's really good. Maybe they think we wrote it, even though we didn't. Um, and then our, uh, uh, our guitarist, Alphonse, came up with the idea of doing The Police Next to You, which is the song we did on the album. And again, we like, you know, the police version has no synths on it at all. We, we put a lot of synths on that, on that song, but still, you know, kept it rocking. That was the idea. What inspires you when creating? Um, I think when you're writing, I think Billy Joel may have said this years ago. If you're either really, really happy or really, really sad, you're going to write a song. If you're just kind of content, feeling middle of the road, that's when you, you're not inspired to write anything. So, you know, if something's, it could be something as simple as I'm, I'm in my apartment in Manhattan and and I'm looking out at uh, the view of I can see the Empire State Building from my from my window, and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, "Wow, man, I live in a really great city. I've been here for years. This is my hometown. I love my neighborhood. I just came back from the coffee shop. I got you know an, an egg sandwich and a, and a and an iced coffee, and that's that's inspiring to me, uh, you know." Every time I walk around the corner in New York, even though I've lived there for years and years, there's something new. There's a new adventure. There's this sense of opportunity. So that definitely inspires me. Or if, I don't know, something horrible or tragic happened or that also can inspire you to write uh, a different kind of song, but a song as well. It's just, you know, being kind of blasé or bored or um, that that's a bad place to be to, to write a song. But even then you got to force yourself to write a, I write a song every week with this song game. And sometimes the ones that aren't good at first end up being the ones that are the best songs you write, just because there's a, a nugget of something in there that you can unravel or work on and, and make it a great song. Do you find in that moment when you're living your life, to find things that make you happy or on the other side, if things make you down and make you sad to really kind of find the, the, the inspiration to heal yourself through that. Are you always looking for those, those kinds of different variables? Um, I'm not looking for them. They just happen. I mean, I'm, I'm always writing music. So if those moments happen to me, uh, it's not like I, you know, I, I go out or, you know, sometimes we're on tour, you know, if we're on tour, I'm traveling to different places, meeting different people, 
playing music live. That's that inspires me as well. But it's not like I, I walk out of my apartment and I'm like, I'm going to go find something to inspire me. I just do what I'm going to do anyway. And those those moments will happen where you where you get inspired, hopefully. And then since I'm always writing, whatever, you know, I'm going to capture that inspirational moment. Um, and that it's always as a songwriter, you got to keep a recording device. Everyone has phones now, so that that'll work. But you got to keep something to capture those. It could be in the middle of the night. Could be who who knows when, but you you need within arm's reach something to capture that musical idea or moment or melody or whatever it is lyric uh, right as it comes to you. Otherwise, it could it could vanish and you'll never get it back. That's you know the famous story about Paul McCartney when he woke up from a dream in the middle of the night and the song Yesterday was in his mind and he just picked up a tape recorder and recorded it. He didn't have the lyric though. I don't, I don't know if you know the story he, he, that when he first came up with that melody, the song was called scrambled eggs. Yeah. And you know, instead of yesterday, he was singing scrambled eggs. Oh, how I love your legs or whatever the lyric was. And then he went in and he, and he thankfully made it yesterday. What's next for you guys? You have the album out and you know, the tour season is upon us. What, uh, what are your plans for the band and what are your plans for the album? We're going on tour. Um, Starting, I believe, the end of March or beginning of April, we're going to start out uh, in Detroit, work our way around the Midwest, head down to Florida, and then just keep piling on dates more and more, you know, as they come. And then I believe in a few months we're going to do, uh, you know, the album's out wherever you consume music. The one thing we don't have quite yet is a vinyl release. I always do vinyl for my albums. I think it's, uh, first of all, it's a, I just love vinyl. And it's a really good item now, especially at shows. People love buying vinyl. And it's it's the one way you can, at this point, it's one of the few ways you can physically own a copy of a record um, other than having it on your device or, or streaming it or whatever. Um, but there is there is just such a backlog of vinyl production um, with all the, you know, work, uh, with all the uh, shortages and everything that's going on, on in the world. Uh, we're going to have to wait a couple of months before those vinyl albums are ready, but they'll be ready and we'll have them. Yeah, I, I can speak to that. I just got an album today. Um, <clears throat> right before I sat down and talked with you that I ordered in July. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's, that's not even the longest one I've waited for. There was one that it took almost a year um, that I got last year. So yeah, that's, you know, the, the good thing is, as a result of that, is there's more pressing facilities that are opening up now. So hopefully yeah. within a year or two, this problem won't exist anymore because vinyl is becoming so popular. It's almost, I mean, gosh, if you would have said this in the early 90s, that there's going to be vinyl pressing facilities opening up in 2023, 2024, people would have said you were crazy. But here we are. It, here we are. I heard that. I didn't even know they went away, but apparently CDs are making a comeback. And CDs should never go away. When you think of digital music, everybody likes the streaming services because it's digital. Well, CDs are still a digital format. Yeah. You get the physical copy, you get the artwork, you get all that stuff. So, I mean, I like vinyl and I like CD. Vinyl gives you kind of a more of an intimate sound. Um, and, you know, the gate folds are really cool. And But CD, 
you know, once the cars took um, took CDs out, the car manufacturers took CDs yeah. out of the cars, pretty much, you know, a death, you know, uh, to the CD. But those are making a comeback. So hopefully they do. I, I just, yeah, you know, if I had a choice, I have a streaming service. But if I have a choice between CD and streaming, I'm always going with a CD. Yeah. I mean, I do like having a physical copy. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I do love the, the convenience of streaming services. You know, I have my basically my entire record collection in my pocket at all times, no matter where I am. Yeah, that's, that's great. <clears throat> well, hey, Screaming Jack, it's been a blast. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate uh, it, too. And next time we're out in Chicago, uh, I'll look you up and come by our show. Hey, man, I would love that. I can't wait to see you guys live. Love the album. And for everyone listening, go get it. It's uh, Fastest Land Animal. The album is East Coast, West Coast, in between. My guest has been Screaming Jack Novak. And, uh, man, go get it. Go stream it wherever you get it and go check out uh, their website. And hopefully tour dates will be here soon. You got it. Thanks a lot, Jay. All right, everyone. I'm Jay Scott. This has been another episode of the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe. Take care of each other. We will talk soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.